Welcome to Writish, the one-stop shop on your writer journey where we discuss everything writing related from shiny new ideas through publication and marketing. Whether it's on the indie or traditional path and the ish of life that feels and sometimes gets in the way of our creative pursuits. I'm Zara, a self-published author of young adult and new adult fiction and alumni of the NYU Masters in Publishing program and the founder of Inimitable Books, LLC, a new book publisher dedicated to uplifting marginalized voices without forcing authors to spotlight their trauma. And I'm Kelly, a genre-hopping writer, trier of hobbies, and debuting author this year. My book, Down the Well, comes out in September 2023. Be sure to add it on Goodreads or Zara's favorite alternative, Book Hype. Links will be in the show notes. There is a trigger warning for this episode, which contains a brief mention of familial essay, nothing in graphic detail, but still it's talked about. We would also like to add a disclaimer that these are hot takes and therefore just our spicy opinions, nothing more, nothing less. So take everything with a grain of salt and just have a good time with us. I got spicy opinions, okay? Spicy. I hope you have a glass of milk sitting right by you. These are in no particular order. They're all probably going to piss off at least some percentage of people. So buckle in, folks. Let's jump into the first hot take, which is probably going to piss off a lot of people. You're welcome. High School Musical wasn't that great. Just to clarify, you are talking about the Disney original film directed by Kenny Ortega, not the whatever the hell TV show is on Disney+. Plus. They made a TV show? Yeah. I think Disney is honestly just like redoing all these old movies and live action stuff, and they're just not doing any new... I think that they're doing all this stuff just to prey on nostalgia. Gonna just quickly throw in a hot take that I saw on Twitter recently as of the time of this recording. Someone said we should be adapting black fantasy books like N.K. Jemisin's at, for an example, rather than just redoing Lord of the Rings. I know Rings of Power is not redoing Lord of the Rings, but like... At some point, it's going to get rebooted. We all know that. And then Vampire Academy, again, also like movie not good, but they're doing it on Peacock and supposedly it's amazing. And then I liked Shadowhunters, which was for Cassandra Clare's Accused of Plagiarism book series, but at least the show was better than... <laughs> The movie City of Bones. I do think we do need to adapt more black fantasy books like N.K. Jemisin, but I also think we do need to continue doing the inclusion with like stuff like Percy Jackson or Rings of Power. Yeah, no, the fact that Rings of Power is more ethnically diverse and House of the Dragon has House Valerian as like being all black, like that's super cool. What House of the Dragon is doing to those black characters is awful compared to what even George R.R. R. Martin did in the books. And it's like, why'd you make them black if you're then going to screw them over? So I'm not a fan of the people behind that show, but I did want to say both of those have more diverse actors in them. So that is something that's good. But Vampire Academy really went all out on the diversity. Kudos to them. I think that that is a valid addition to my addition to your hot take. I know that Percy Jackson is your favorite book series ever. It's the one that got you into reading. If this is news to you, listener, please go back and listen to our older episodes. I promise they're really good. And you get to know us more over the course of them. Such an amazing backlog, honestly. So proud of us. 
But yes, Percy Jackson will always have a special place within my heart. And I think that while the movies were absolutely atrocious, it's not because the actors weren't good. You know, I think the actors were pretty good. You don't have to go that far to see that Logan Lerman was in other things and was very good. And Alexandra Daddario was... I mean, her character was a little bit strange in White Collar, I'll admit. But, like, I don't think it was because she was bad at acting. And then Brandon T. Jackson was, like, super fun as Grover. I just felt like they skipped over a lot with the screenwriting. I remember hearing that Rick Riordan basically made a suggestion to the people who were, like, casting that they should cast younger actors, like what happened with Harry Potter. Yeah. So they could grow up. Yeah. And they did not take that suggestion. And I think that if they would have, it would have made a big difference. But again, it's not the actor's fault that they did cast because obviously they have played in other things and I thought they were good. In the exact same boat, I felt that way about Twilight, whatever you want to say about it. I think when the movie came out, everyone was like, oh, Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart, they're not good actors, even though Robert Pattinson had been in things before, Kristen Stewart had been in things before. And then both of them since Twilight have gone on to be in things and like are very good. But I don't think it was until Robert Pattinson played the Batman and you had Kristen Stewart nominated for an award for her portrayal of Princess Diana that people are like, oh yeah, they are good actors. Even if you look at Breaking Dawn Part 2, which I still think it's super stupid that they split the fourth book into two movies. Huge spoiler, I guess. I don't know. Like, at what point can we stop saying spoiler? She becomes a vampire. Something about how Bella is normally a one-note depressed, welcome mad, and then after she turns, and that gives Kristen Stewart the ability to dip more into acting. Absolutely. Without any segue. Perfect. No segue. Just say it with your chest. (laughs) 2007 Golden Compass movie adapting the Golden Compass if you live in the U.S. or anywhere else in the world. It is known as Northern Lights by Philip Pullman. Banger cast. The special effects were like good for what they were at the time. The polar bears were actually done under the supervision of Chris Weiss, who, if you don't know... Years later, directed Twilight New Moon, and all the behind the scenes for Twilight New Moon are like, oh yeah, we had to figure out how to animate werewolves. I'm like, your director already animated talking polar bears. Like, why are you reinventing the wheel? But anyway, I digress. It was a good movie. And on the flip side of all the other adaptations that we've been talking about, where it's like, ah, the movie might have been trash, but the show was good. I actually think that the HBO show for his Dark Materials, which is the title of the entire trilogy... Is not good. I love seeing you get passionate. And my biggest pet peeve is that the main character, the actress playing her, thinks that shouting is acting and can't do anything else. (laughs) And some people have said, oh, it's the director. I do blame the director for that because the director could have easily told the actor, don't do that. At the same time, though, there's only so much a director can do with a bad actor. And in this case, I'm inclined to think that it is the bad acting. There's a scene that's important and the 
girl just shouted the entire thing. And I was like, there is no modulation. And therefore I am tuning you out as much as I can, because I'd rather that you were white noise than what is happening on screen right now. I can't stop laughing because I know nothing about any of this. And just saying you get so passionate and and stuff about it because I know that this is like your favorite. It's my favorite book. It is not my favorite show. I stopped watching after the first season, even though there's been like a second and maybe even third season. And it's just like, also, if you do want to watch it, I want to warn you all that there are some like SA vibes in season one. And then there's SA in... I think it's book two and book three. There's a certain character who's like not good at all and is the perpetrator of the essay and they introduce him much earlier in the show for world building purposes. And because I did not watch season two and three, I don't know what they did with that, but um, it's HBO. So it can't be anything good for my mental health. You're not wrong. Okay, so to, I guess, gently leave that pile of steaming hot take on the table, I'm going to bring something up that (laughs) has been talked about in past episodes that I think is like a nice little nugget before we get into another steaming pile of hot take that y'all probably ain't ready for. (laughs) So here's my nugget for you. You don't have to write every day to be a good writer. This was mentioned in the worst writing advice episode all the way back in season one. Like we said, we have a good catalog. You should go back and check it out. And of course, share with your friends. Share the back catalog with your friends. And you don't have to read craft books to tell a compelling story. This was mentioned in craft books episode of season three. I agree with both of those. I still recommend that people listen to both of those episodes because we said a lot more in both of those episodes, but I don't have anything to add here. Okay, so to my steaming hot pile of hot take, I'm not a fan of the modern retellings that revolve around Persephone and Hades and their love story. I feel, you see, I'm using I feel statements. This is an opinion. I feel it strips away a vital aspect of her that is a survivor of familial essay, which, in my opinion, as an essay survivor, is one of the reasons I am drawn to her because in her mythos, she goes on to be powerful and a feared goddess of the underworld. And she does this even though her and Hades were forced together and it wasn't really her choice. I understand why people like it and I will get into what I think people actually like with this. So she still finds success and contentment even after the essay in, in, the, in the myths. Uh, the only reason I think the version of the modern retelling is so popular is because the actual thing people like is the grumpy paired with sunshine and flowers or the dark cinnamon roll paired with the sunshine and flowers person, which if you look at Hades and Persephone, at first glance, yes, that's what they literally embody, is grumpy and sunshine. But I think people actually just like the the old opposites attract, 
trope. That's what I think people like. And I think that the reason why Hades and Persephone's story was kind of spun with this modern retelling that has become so popular is because of that pairing. And I think that it was just an easy pairing based off of attributes to these deities. Yeah, I agree with that. I also think that something a lot of the modern retellings put emphasis on that I do like, while I agree, I don't like that they stripped away like the inciting incident of the whole thing. He kidnaps her and then forces her to eat pomegranate seeds. She was forced. Well, yeah, but she doesn't even eat pomegranate seeds until he's already kidnapped her to Hades. So, you know, but mm, not great. Anyway, the thing that I do like is that I think a lot of the retellings, if you push the sunshine girl, normally it's a her. I don't mean to be heteronormative, but unfortunately media is. So that's why I'm talking about it. She's got steel under there. She could burn you with her rays type of thing. And I don't think... um, earlier adaptations necessarily were like Persephone has steel in her spine and it's not really acknowledged in the myth until she becomes powerful. You know what I mean? It seems more like, a oh, she grew into this powerful person. Whereas I think a lot of the modern retellings are she is very clearly wanting to strike out on her own. She wants to be more powerful than she's allowed to be, or she wants to get out from under her mom's helicopter. Are you talking about the original myths? Because everything I've read of original myths, it's always her and her mom are very close. Yeah, but what I'm saying is I feel like in the retellings, there's more familial discord in her original situation. Okay, you're talking about the retellings that shows that she is already being stifled. So while it's not good how she gets into the underworld and the situation from there, it's like readers can see like, oh, she did have spunk and fight in her. She just wasn't allowed to express it. Whereas I think the original myth was like, oh, she was super flowery. And then she became the super powerful queen of the underworld. But it's not like, oh, it was always in her. Do you know what I mean? Okay, I got you. Yeah. So yeah. I think people actually just like grumpy and sunshine. I think that the aspects of these deities at first glance were the easiest thing for storytellers to grab on. Since we talked about tropes, uh, Zara, how do you feel about any particular trope? So many tropes I could talk about where it's like, oh, I really love you. Or yeah, I like you if you're done well. I'm not necessarily an insta buy on that, but like, cool. One that I kind of absolutely hate (laughs) is enemies to lovers. And I talked about this in my 25th birthday episode, which will be linked in the show notes. Before y'all get mad, and you can get mad and stay mad if you'd like, that's up to you. When I say I hate enemies to lovers, I mean enemies to lovers in I killed your family. I killed your country. I killed your town. Any scale of like, I actually hurt the people you love or straight up, I hurt you. And then they become lovers. And I'm not talking about like second chance romance where it's you like hurt each other's feelings very bad. That can be done well. There are times where I've read a a second chance romance where I'm like, no, they really should not have been forgiven. There should not have been a second chance. I am talking about when a character maybe physically tortures another character or mutilates them, or does something. Yes, I'm thinking of a very specific example in my head, but I don't want to say it because it's a spoiler 
for the book show. Yes, it has a show adaptation, if that helps you narrow it down. And then they become lovers. I, mm, nope, don't like it. Also feel that the bully romance falls under here because of my personal trauma. I know there are levels to everything, but it is born out of the extremist version of the rivals to lovers that I do like. If you've read Pride and Prejudice or most of Jane Austen's books, there's always like some type of banter sniping between the love interests before they finally get together. So like that I love and I'm fine with rivals to lovers. If it's, you know, two people going for the same job promotion two people who have competing businesses, things like that. Like I, I'm fine with the love interest being antagonists in each other's life because their wants are opposed to each other in some way. I'm not okay when there's actual crimes committed against one of them by the other. And then it's like, oh, but they end up together happy. Actual atrocities. Yeah, it's like, if it's a war crime, no. (laughs) Stepping off my soapbox. Now I'm going to step onto mine. I think cats are the superior pet. And I will fight anyone who says otherwise. I can't even really argue my dog is essentially a cat in personality. I can hear everyone screaming now in anger. So let me clarify why I have this stance. Cats are more independent as a parent of a toddler and as someone who grew up around dogs. They are a forever toddler. Science says that dogs' intelligence normally doesn't go past the age of like four. So you're also like scientifically right. This is not just an observation. (laughs) Yeah. And from what I have observed, most people aren't actually equipped to handle a toddler for 15 or 20 years, however long the dog's lifespan is. But yeah, so like that's a commitment that I think a lot of people aren't actually equipped to handle. And many good dogs end up in shelters or just dumped off randomly to no fault of their own because they are toddlers essentially. And I think if cats were idolized as much as dogs, people... Cats were idolized by the Egyptians. Well, they should be idolized again. Because I think if people kind of started looking at cats in that way again, as how dogs have been so idolized, <laughs> in my opinion, that they that people could still enjoy the love of a pet parenthood with a pet that's a bit more independent. So like if dogs are toddlers, then cats are teenagers. They still require care, yes, but it's not as much care as a toddler requires. And speaking of cats and my love for cats, I think it's a red flag when someone doesn't like cats or when someone makes a joke that involves like a cat being harmed or something like that. Like, I just think that if people don't like cats, it's a red flag because cats are creatures of consent and they aren't searching to please humans. So when someone says they hate cats or something along the lines of that, I see it as this person does not do well with boundaries or consent. Yeah. The people that I was quote unquote friends with in middle school They had cats and they were all so mean and scared me. And I now looking back and be like, oh, they didn't accept the boundaries of their own cat. No wonder their cat like was scratching them and things like that. If a cat is doing something like that, chances are some people did something nasty to that cat. You know, I I understand that it's their way of communicating and be like, no, seriously, I said, stop petting me, which obviously I respect. I respect that from dogs, too. If anything, I don't pet dogs long enough, according to them. But 
Yes, dogs want all the pets, and dogs are great. Although, I should be fair that your cat, Nymph, also agreed with Riley that I don't give pets long enough. And let me just tell everyone that I was petting said animal with one hand while typing a novel with my non-dominant hand on my laptop as I sat next to Kelly and her two girls when I was visiting them. I was just going to say, let's talk about how your interaction with my cat was because she took such a liking to you. I mean, I was flattered and I was like, oh, great. Like, I don't need to be scared of cats because genuinely they're not something to be feared. And I also, for people who don't know, I don't think I've ever actually mentioned this story on the podcast before. My uncle had a dog that my mom used to babysit all the time because my for a very long time before my mom adopted me, she was the only person in her generation without kids. So she was always free to babysit. Anyway, she used to dog sit all the time. First time I meet the dog, very jealous that my mom suddenly has me, (laughs) runs at me, attacks me by scratching at my face and draws blood. So my first experience with the dog, not good. And it took me years and our cousin who had a dog for me to get comfortable with dogs and just because... That happens. I had a good example of a dog sooner than I had a good example of a cat is what made me into a dog person. But now that I'm like, oh, no, both animals are great. I am ambivalent to the war and more just like, give me all the pets. I would like to pet them. (sighs) Animals are great. I just think that like whenever we're talking about pets, it's just there's a lot of people that don't need to have dogs. Yeah. No, there are people who are not qualified to be parents of any living thing. So not just like human kids, but also not animals. <laughs> yeah, not not pet kids, not fur kids. So with that, let's go ahead and move on. So Kelly had said that we need to stop preying on nostalgia and just adapting the same things over and over again. And... I agree. I had brought up a similar hot take, but I love musical theater. I love Broadway. It was probably the happiest highlight of my childhood while I was stuck at my miserable nursery through middle school. Lately, Broadway seems to only be adapting films into musicals. So what do I mean? Pretty Woman. Legally Blonde. Beetlejuice. I'm not going to say that two more times because I don't want to summon him. Mean Girls. Mean Girls for Broadway? Yeah. What the fuck? Okay. They're cute. They're fun. I don't think they're anywhere near as good as the original musicals done by Stephen Sondheim. Rest in peace. Jonathan Larson. Rest in peace. Lin-Manuel Miranda. I also like Stephen Schwartz and Alan Menken. If you're wondering who Alan Menken is, if you like the Disney Renaissance films, that's him. And yes, Wicked, one of my favorite musicals, is based on a book. As is Phantom of the Opera, which is closing on Broadway. I never thought that was ever going to happen. And Les Mis, my mom's favorite musical, also based on a book. But that is taking words from a printed page and putting it like on stage in a form that's like never been done before. Taking a movie and putting it in a musical on stage, well, granted, are not the same things. There are both actors that I can see who are saying dialogue and I'm just over it because honestly it's so much cheaper to see the movie (laughs) preying on nostalgia that's what they're doing yeah that's all it is 
And I get it. Like, you know, if Broadway's making money, then I'm happy. At the same time, though, give me more original stuff. And I think that is a wonderful ending to this episode. It was fun. I hope y'all enjoyed it and, you know, could take it with a grain of salt. This is the Writers Podcast, and we'll be back with another episode next week. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the Writers Podcast and on Hive Social and Kofi at Writish. Bye. Bye.